Father, uh, we pause. The sun is not yet up, but we know when it rises. So do Your mercies. And we are uh, men who are here for obviously a wide variety of reasons, but I hope one of which is that we long to know You more, to know You first, to find in some way our life found under and in You. And whether we come uh, discouraged or elated, guilt-ridden or free, we, we ask that You would meet us. And we know that You will. So through the, the fellowship of the Word and the fellowship of the table, I pray that You would show us exactly what You want us to see today. And we ask it in the name of Christ. Amen. Alright, a little warning as we start today. It's not a good way to start your talk, by the way, but it's too late. Uh, the topic is exciting to me. It is very scriptural. We never want to talk about things that aren't. Let me be clear about that. But Scripture is inundated with the theme we're going to discuss today. So you're going to see a lot of Scripture and you're going to hear a lot of Scripture. And primarily what I hope from this morning is I'm simply giving small commentary and letting God preach the sermon. Okay, So don't be uh, uh, frightened if you look at the handout and you see that there's a lot of Scripture on it. Uh, it's going to be helpful, I hope. And you may even want to have your iPhone Bible or your actual Bible handy. And you can make fun of each other for whichever you might be, an iPhone Bible guy or a, a paper Bible guy. But have those handy. Um, and feel free to just write. I will tell you the references so that you can go back and look at them again. Um, my hope is that this would be something that becomes a devotion for your week. So John chapter 1. This is where we will begin. They asked him, and that him is John the Baptist, why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? And John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. And the next day, he, that's John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him. And he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Uh, I was once asked how I wanted to be advertised or introduced before a speaking engagement. It wasn't a large speaking engagement, but they were wanting to make known who was coming and uh, what would be going on that day. 
And so I thought it was kind of a funny question to ask how to be advertised, and so I said, Michael Jordan. <laughs> they didn't laugh like you didn't. Uh, <clears throat> but I just thought, why not? There's no way to secure more attendance for them and more attention for me than to simply tell them Michael Jordan's coming to talk. Make that my introduction. And unfortunately, they chose a much more boring path. They gave me a proper introduction. It's an introduction, actually, that still makes me shake a little bit when it's said out loud, but it was Pastor Brent Baker. I think the attendance was half what they expected that day. But why would they do that? Well, because Brent Baker is who I am, and a pastor is what I do. And pastor is a loaded title. In some ways, it's a very dangerous introduction. I've experienced this, having only been a pastor for even less than a decade. Uh, This is what I've experienced. Some don't like pastors. I've actually learned that on flights. There's nothing that will put the headphones on faster than telling someone when they ask what you do that you're a pastor. Some idolize pastors. I've also learned that over these years. And while it feels good initially, it creates expectations that are impossible to fulfill. Some feel comfortable knowing I'm a pastor and they will come and they will want my presence and they will desire to share with me needs that they have because they feel that in me there's something that can help meet those. And I've learned, even as a young pastor, I'm pretty powerless. And the need is so great. And some hear a pastor and they immediately say this, I'm praying for you. And while I don't exactly know what they mean by that, could mean a wide variety of things. I accept it because I know how badly not just them, but I actually do need that and how easily that can be forgotten just because of the introduction of being a pastor. One thing's certain, it's loaded. And so I wonder if Jesus was in the flesh coming up here today, how would you think I should introduce Him? How would you introduce Jesus? Some don't like Him. I've learned that on flights as well. Some idolize Him, or I guess more appropriately said, they worship Him. Some immediately want His presence in their lives, and that's good because the need is, is really great. But some hear His name and they are filled with fear, anxiety, anger, or ridden with guilt. Just the mere mention of Him to you, or to me, or to someone, can cause the conscience to start twisting and turning inside. There's something big about Him. There's something loaded. And one thing is certain, introducing Jesus is a big introduction. That was John the Baptist's job. He gets the honor of doing so because God chose him as the final prophet before Jesus would start his ministry on this earth. And how would John the Baptist introduce Jesus? Well, he said this, the next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, now he could have said a lot of things. 
He said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let's be really straightforward and practical today. Okay? Whether we are skeptical or we're comforted, we're afraid, we're elated, whether we're embittered or we're guilted at the name of Jesus, we have to understand this introduction to understand His work at all. Scripture is filled to the brim with references that would have made any ancient Near Eastern ear know exactly what John the Baptist was saying when he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. We know this from Revelation because he says something strange in his apocalyptic literature. He says in Revelation 13.8, there was a Lamb who was sitting on the throne. The Lamb who was slain from before the foundation of the world. Everything in the end, if you read through the book of Revelation, has a Lamb on the throne. And it's referenced as a Lamb who was slain. And here in John's Gospel, we have the Lamb of God starting His ministry. And so what I want to do this morning is scream backwards. Let's go back to the creation of the world. Let's go back and see exactly what it means that Jesus, in this introduction, is the Lamb of God. It would have been familiar to any Jewish ear who heard it. And I think for some of you, this might be news To some of you, this might be old news, but for all of us, it's good news. So let's go backwards today. What is the Lamb of God? Well, from the very beginning, at creation, God revealed and announced that the payment for sin is the blood, the life of the sinner. Now this is important because the very idea of a lamb, if it was presented before them and it's presented before us today, is really beckoning It's really asking the question, who will pay for sin? And from the creation of the world, we hear God say, if you sin, you shall surely die, die. You know that's what it said in the garden. If you eat of the fruit of that tree, you will surely die. Surely die as die, die, die. And what it means is this, at that point in time, you should immediately, physically and spiritually, die. Paul understood this, and it's why he said the wages of sin is... Now, that feels heavy and harsh, doesn't it? But from the beginning, there's been no confusion as to the power and the penalty of sin. Sin has always been deadly and therefore deserving of death. And from the very first experience of sin, perhaps we might need to reconsider how lightly we tend to treat such a deadly foe. Because the measure to which we understand that reality is the measure to which we will understand why it's so magnificent that Jesus is called the Lamb of God. I'm going to be Wichita Fallsian and just tell you this. Sin demands a life sacrifice. Sin demands sacrifice. From the garden, sin demands sacrifice. And yet when Adam and Eve sin, directly violating God's command, what happens? They don't die. Do they? 
Our Bible would be a lot shorter if that was the case. They don't die. At least not physically. Why? Well, sin demands a sacrifice, but God sacrifices something else in their place. Genesis 3.8 And they, Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? The first question from the mouth of God in all of Scripture. Pursuing sinners. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave me. <laughs> We've never done that, right? The woman who you gave me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And then the Lord God turns to the woman and says, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent. The serpent deceived me and I ate. Hiding. Minimizing. Justifying. Blame shifting. All the effects of sin. Really the first fruits of leading to death. And yet it says in verse 21 this, amidst their nakedness, amidst their felt shame at the very presence of God, the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Garments of skins. It's linguistically and it's historically very clear that the outward covering of a living thing is what this is referring to. And most often, if you just read through the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, you'll see that this is almost always referring to an animal that is sacrificed and provides covering for the people. Which means this, from the first example of sin, God intends to sacrifice something other than man and woman. An animal, perhaps, in their place. Sin demands a sacrifice. God intends to sacrifice something else in their place. And then Genesis 22, verse 6, And Abraham, we're fast-forwarding, took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took it in his hand, the fire and the knife. And so they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father! And Abraham said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And then Abraham says this, God will provide for Himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And so they went, both of them together. Sin demands a sacrifice. God intends to sacrifice something other than man. And God says here that He will provide the sacrifice Himself, a lamb, to die in His Son's place. God will provide the sacrificial lamb. Now, this would then become a normalized practice for the people of God throughout the years of the Old Testament. 
And it was seen as something that would secure forgiveness and cleansing for their sins. It was instituted in their law. Leviticus 17.11 says this. You ever thought, why do you have to have a blood sacrifice? It's something we get squeamish talking about with someone who maybe is asking about the Christian faith. Leviticus says this, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. The very essence of life is found in the blood. And the shedding of blood means the loss of life. But God takes that, which by itself would be something to make us squeamish, and says, but this blood will offer for you atonement, forgiveness, freedom, payment for the wages. In other words, this incredibly seemingly negative thing actually has unbelievable positive consequences for you. Are you here today and you have a guilty conscience? You need the blood. Why? Because if something else can be sacrificed and shed its blood for you, you can be set free. But one thing is clear. Blood must be shed. Because in the moment that you sin, you will surely die, die. Because sin is not only deadly, it causes death. And so without the Lamb, there was no forgiveness. That's what Leviticus tells us. Well, then, then how could God's people regularly secure forgiveness, this okayness, this right standing, this access to the enjoyment of God rather than dreading and fearing Him? How could they ensure that God would overlook or overpass their sins? And more than just once, but for some customary way to secure the forgiveness of God, through the blood of this Lamb. And of course, we have the Lord's Passover. The Lord's Passover was a feast that took place that God instituted when the people were in Egypt under the slavery of Pharaoh. This is the passage in Exodus. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and He did not let the people of Israel go out of His land. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month will be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. And tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb. According to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. God will provide the sacrificial lamb. Without the lamb, there was no forgiveness. And every single man, without exception, needs a lamb. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Okay, And here's what that really means. It's not just that every man needs a lamb. The sacrificial lamb must be unblemished 
and it must be in its prime. Why? Well, sin can't pay for sin. Something sinless, something without blemish is going to have to pay for sin. Otherwise, you would need another sacrifice to pay for the sacrifice that paid for sin. You tracking with me? It's early. Right? You can't have sin pay for sin. You need sinless to pay for sin. And it's instituted right here. For the people, the sacrificial lamb must be unblemished in a year old, in its prime, not aged. And then, God says, take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which the people eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roast it on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roast it its head with its legs and its inner parts, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you burn. In this manner you will eat it, with your belt fastened, with your sandals on your feet, with your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt." both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Not only do we see that there is a way, a customary way for there to be a, an overpass for the sins of the people. But it's screaming out loud that without the Lamb, there is no salvation. What would happen to Egypt will happen to you without the blood of the Lamb. The primary difference between the two of you is you will be covered by the blood of the Lamb. Because without the Lamb, there's no salvation. And maybe even more so, what we see from this passage is that forgiveness is in a feast. It's not just a sacrifice for sin that transactionally makes this happen. It's something you're supposed to eat. Forgiveness is not just something that happens to them. It's something that begins to consume them. It becomes whole of what they are. So much of what we hear about, and we should hear about, that is done on our behalf by God, instead of consuming it, we simply treat it like a transaction. This doesn't allow for that. It tells us actually that forgiveness is a feast. Do you wish to be passed over by the justice of God? Do you wish for Him to overlook your charges? Do you wish for Him to overlook your guilty verdict? Let me put it this way. Do you have a troubled conscience? And you know if you do. Because when I say that and pause, it's the thing that makes you either want to take your eyes off of me or put your mind in another place. That's the hiding. That's the shifting. That's the minimizing. We all do it. 
what will pay for that? What will fix? What will make a good conscience that no longer is afraid of sin? What could possibly do that? What could pass over those things? And without a sacrificial lamb, none will be passed over. Instead, only justice will fall. You know, there's really no fair or unfair in this story. There's justice and mercy. And only those covered by the blood of the Lamb receive mercy. All others receive only justice. And that's because sin demands a sacrifice. That's because God sacrificed something else in their place. That's because without the Lamb, there is no forgiveness. That's because every single man without exception needs the Lamb. That's because the sacrificial Lamb must be unblemished and in its prime, a sinless sacrifice for a sinful person. And that's because without the Lamb, there is no salvation. The Lamb was central to the identity of the people of God throughout the Old Testament. And it was signified through their primary annual meal. Screaming that there is forgiveness and a feast. A celebration of salvation, of freedom, of substitute, of sacrifice for sin. And so it is with us, isn't it? Forgiveness and a feast. It's the very thing that John the Baptist means when he says what he said before Jesus had done anything with regards to His earthly ministry. We too have a lamb. And we too have a meal. And it's central to our identity as the people of God. It's vital to our salvation. It's vital to our freedom. It's vital to our consumption of forgiveness. It's vital for us to know that we have a secure answer to the question, who will pay for my sin? And so, that's why Luke writes this in chapter 22. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And so Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. And they said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? And he said to them, Behold, when you've entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house. The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room? Where may I eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you. He'll show you a large room, an upper room, furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, Jesus reclined at the table and the apostles with Him, and He said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And He took a cup, and when He had given thanks, He said, Take and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And He took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and gave it to them and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, he took the cup after they had eaten and said, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. 
This is the Passover feast. And Luke makes it clear that the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. But where is the lamb? Where is the lamb in this passage? It's missing in the narrative. The place is provided. The people are there. We see food. We see drink. We see bread. We see wine. Jesus sits as Himself as the host with His dearest family and friends. But where's the Lamb? And that's the whole point. There will be bloodshed. There will be life given. But it will be Mine. I am the Lamb. The Lamb of God slain for the sins of the world. Every role the sacrificial lamb would play for Passover, Jesus is taking onto Himself at this Passover meal. And we have consecrated it and made it a customary meal for us today. Forgiveness in a feast. The lambs provided by God in the Old Testament had always served to take away sin. But they could never take away sin always. The lambs of God in the Old Testament had always served to take away sin, but they could never take away sin always. Sin demands a sacrifice, but it needs a sinless sacrifice. And Jesus Christ is saying through this feast that He institutes to us, to them, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice in the Old Testament, which can never fully take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until His enemies would be made a footstool for His feet. For by a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who will be sanctified. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood and secured for us an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify their flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ He did not come to offer Himself repeatedly as the high priest entered the holy place every year with the blood of lambs. For then Jesus would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, He appeared once for all to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. Brothers, who will pay for your sins? Who will pay for my sins? This is something that has to be confessed. This is something that has to be applied because it's not earned. And this is something that has to be eaten 
because it's a feast. And we so often have a tendency to treat the blood of Jesus lightly or with contempt. Because we so often have the tendency to treat our sin lightly or with contempt. And so when John says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, if you don't have a right view of the sins of you, you will not have a right view of the Lamb of God. But if you do, the thing that seems like it's going to kill you is going to set you free. And so I want to close with the words of John again. And I want to close this way because we have a tendency to hide and shift and minimize instead of allowing ourselves to be covered by the blood of the Lamb. Brothers, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His Word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation. He is the payment for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. To hide or deny is to be uncovered. To confess and be covered by the blood of the Lamb is to be set free. Let me pray. Father, may Your Word sink into us. You know that so much of what I said this morning was directly from Your Word. And Father, I I didn't do that to avoid using my words at all. I did that because from the beginning of the foundations of the world to the end when there's a Lamb upon the throne, we're reminded, we're admonished time and time and time and time again that Jesus Christ came for our forgiveness and for us to feast. And so often, we treat that with lightness, even contempt. Set our guilty consciences free. Set our wandering hearts on a straight course. Help us to be covered by the blood of the Lamb. And if we're here today and need forgiveness badly from you and or from others, would you please help us to have the courage to behold the Lamb of God, to confess and to be free. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.